Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. You are taking notes. The title of my message today is, I don't think it's working. <clears throat> I don't think it's working. You ever had uh, somebody try and sell you on something that, uh, that they're doing that they think you should do? even though you're pretty sure that it's not even working for them. Anybody ever had this experience before? They're like hard selling you and you're like, I don't really know. Maybe it was a diet, um, you know, and they're not really losing weight. Um, maybe it was a parenting technique and you're like, I don't like your kids. You know what I mean? Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was, you know, a, a centering practice and you're like, you, you're not centered. Okay. I don't, uh, I, 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 this has happened to me multiple times, and um, you know, maybe if it's happened to you, they said something when they're trying to sell you of like, oh man, I just, I feel so much better. I really feel like I'm improving, and in your mind, you're like, I'm glad you feel better because you don't seem better, okay? You seem the same. You maybe even seem worse. Um, I had this, this, this didn't happen that long ago. I had this guy. Um, that I bumped into in a parking lot, and uh, he was like, oh, man, he went to talk to me, and, and uh, knew I was a pastor, and he told me, like, oh, yeah, man, I've just been, uh, I've been doing this, um, this new thing. I take these, like, meditation walks, and uh, they've really, really helped me and really calmed me down and really have helped me uh, with my anger issues, and I just almost feel like that stuff is in the rearview mirror. I've really tackled it, and uh, you, he's like, you should try it. You should try these things, man, because they are... They're game changing. And what he didn't know was that before we got to the parking lot, I actually was only a couple car lengths behind him most of the way there. And I saw him yell at and flip off an old lady with a walker in a crosswalk. Like fully take the time to roll down his window, flip her off and scream at her out the window and then, seriously, not 10 minutes later, we actually got into this parking lot of where we were both happened to be going, and he was just like, yeah, man, I think it's really helped. And I was just like, in my head, I'm like, I'm not sure it's working. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what improvement looks like. I mean, if this is improvement, I don't want to know what you were like before. <laughs> Would you jump out of the car and just punch the lady? Like, what is this an improvement on top of? Like, it made me scared for him and his family and friends and virtually everyone I know that knows him. And here's why when we have interactions like this, these people can't sell us because we know, um, or at least we think, like there is no sense working at something that doesn't work. Why do I want to invest effort into something that isn't actually going to pan out or get me any sort of results? Why would I want to try your diet if you're not losing weight on it? Does it make sense? You know, why would I want your investment tips if they made you bankrupt? Logically, doesn't make any sense. Why would I want your marriage advice if you have never had a successful relationship and most of our conversations revolve around you talking about how you hate being married? It doesn't make any sense. And here's what's interesting. This seems logical to us, but Jesus basically said the same sort of thing. I don't know if you caught this, but it was in the tail end of the story that we read last week. There's this sense that Jesus says because he's using a methodology to sort of connect with people 
who aren't Christ followers, and it's being heavily critiqued by other people. And he says this phrase, Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, is in the story last week. He says, wisdom is shown to be right by its results. In other words, it's not a good idea, a good habit, or a good relationship unless it's producing something good. This is sort of uh, the logic that Jesus holds up to people about the thing that he's doing that people think he shouldn't be doing. And also, he's holding it up at the thing that other people are doing that he's like, I'm not sure if it's working. And, and he's encouraging people to look at what is being produced by the actions and the beliefs and the behaviors that they choose. And I think the catch you know, to this idea or concept is that it's much easier to see what others are producing than what we're producing. Because we're with ourselves all the time. And so sometimes, you know, it can be fuzzy to sort of evaluate ourselves accurately. And this is a big critique that outsiders have of Christianity. They're not sure it's producing anything good. Like in, in their minds, in the minds of, of the non-Christians that are looking at Christianity from the outside, if the goal is to become more Christ-like, many Christians don't seem to be making much progress. In fact, some of them seem to be getting even worse. And this is what they wonder, a very logical question. Why would I wanna be a Christian if most of the Christians I know are people that I don't like? would never want to be? That's a great question. And like what kind of person is it that these people don't like and wouldn't want to be? This is how Christians are perceived by outsiders. Buckle up, okay? <laughs> Vicious, cruel, monstrous, judgmental, and narrow-minded. People who say one thing and do another who don't practice what they preach and are just as self-centered, petty, and materialistic as everyone they argue with or attack. They're people who, despite regularly ranting about morality, are willing to do whatever it takes to get their own way and get ahead. And sadly, widespread research and surveys actually prove that this is not just a, a handful of people, that this is sort of a widespread observation. One, one survey that I, I read, uh, which was, I mean, over the course, it was basically spread out over the United States, hundreds of thousands of people being surveyed that demonstrated that when it comes to daily choices, actions, and attitudes, there's next to no difference between Christians and everyone else. Think about that for a minute. The way people work, the way people spend their money, the way people talk, the way people view relationships, no difference. One Christian organization uh, put up these billboards asking people to describe Christians with one word. And there was like a text number that they could text in. And here are the top responses, which I've intentionally chosen not to edit. This is what they said. These are the top ones. Hateful, gullible, judgmental, hypocritical, forgiven, and shitty. And I chose not to edit this list because I think that these words are chosen um, for the fact that they're abrasive. And I, I think it ought to make us feel as uncomfortable as it's intended to. What I think is bizarre about this, you know a Christian inserted the forgiven one? Like a handful of Christians are like forgiven, right? 
in the midst of all of these other negative words. And it, it almost, as you read these in uh, succession, it almost reads like believing that you're forgiven sort of gives you permission to be as horrible as you want to be to other human beings. Is that the case? Is that how it works? And where is this all coming from? I think the, the public perception of Christians is a product of personal experiences with Christians. It's people who've known other people who profess to be Christians and then lived in a way that they didn't want to have anything to do with. Like a coworker who read their Bible every day in the break room and then regularly stabbed other people in the back whenever it benefited them. Or a neighbor who invited everyone to church in their whole neighborhood and posted political signs in their yard telling all those same neighbors that they're idiots. Or a father who dressed up nice and drug his whole family to church with him on Sundays and then demeaned his wife and beat his children during the week. In other words, <clears throat> I think where a lot of these perceptions come from are personal experiences where what the Christians around these people claim to believe had little to no impact on the way they behaved. Uh, a psychologist would call this cognitive dissonance, okay? Cognitive dissonance, which is a glaring inconsistency between someone's stated beliefs and observable actions. Uh, Jesus just called it hypocrisy, okay? <laughs> and... In fact, here's something that he said about the people, the religious people of his day. Matthew chapter 23, verse three says this. Practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example. They don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. So here's what I wanna point out to you that I think is so fascinating. Jesus had the same critiques of religious people then that most outsiders have of Christians now. That they tell others to do things that they don't even do. That they seem more concerned with controlling other people than actually caring about them. And the crazy part is that Jesus is saying is that there are shrapnels of truth in their speech, but a complete lack of love in their attitudes and actions. So learn from them, but don't live like them. And I think part of the reason that Jesus calls people out on this is to make them aware that they're even doing it. Because in his mind, he's not sure they know how they're coming off. And the New Testament authors actually echo this critique that Jesus lands and encourages people to actually self-reflect. Listen to this. This is uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It's a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to an early church. He says, don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. In other words, do the work to become more self-aware. Because the belief I think that the early uh, New Testament, early church pastors had, that I think Jesus had as well, was like, listen, most people don't want to be horrible. It's that they don't know they're being horrible. Like this is giving them the benefit of the doubt. In fact, this is not just other people. You don't always know when you're being horrible. 
And you are horrible sometimes. That's why someone nudged you just now. So maybe, you know, like invite someone to tell you when you're being horrible. But here's, here's the problem that we experience in Christianity. There's a lot of people out there trying to tell people like the truth without an invitation. Like we wanna tell people that we don't even know who we think they are. All the while avoiding anything that might reveal anything unpleasant about who we are. And that reeks of hypocrisy. James, the brother of Jesus, one of the, the early Christian church pastors said this, chapter one of his, his book, verse 23, if you hear the truth about yourself and don't act on it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. In other words, what James is saying here is you do need to be more self-aware, but being aware of an issue isn't the same as addressing it. You need to do both. You need to do both. And we all know people that don't seem to understand this, and they're probably some of the people that you feel most annoyed by. <laughs> you ever had somebody who's just like, oh, man, you know what? I just had this realization of, you know, like people just help me and they just help me realize that apparently I can be really harsh and dismissive to other people. And uh, man, it was really eye-opening just sort of realizing that about myself. And you're like, wow. Like, yeah, it's really, it's really changed a lot for me. And you're like, oh my gosh, well, what are you doing, um, you know, to address that? And they're like, oh, nothing. Uh, I just tell people to expect me to be horrible, you know, because of my Enneagram number and all, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> And you're like, oh, I don't really, I'm not sure that that's actually how it works. Um, uh, wow. Um, yeah, now that I'm aware, <laughs> everything's, everything's better. And it's like, no, 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 now you just know about you what we all knew about you the whole time. You still got to do something about it. The fact that you know you're a jerk doesn't change the fact that you are still a jerk. <laughs> just so you know how that works. And here's what the New Testament authors are continually trying to wake us up to. Faith is action-oriented. It, it moves beyond knowing what's right to doing what's right. And this is the call of the New Testament church who's following Jesus. But we don't want to admit this to ourselves, that we need to move beyond just having a certain set of beliefs to actually exercising a certain set of behaviors that reflect Christ. And because we don't want to admit this to ourselves, you know what we do instead? We blame shift. My lack of spiritual growth isn't my fault. <laughs> it's my pastor's, okay? I just, I think I need to find a different church, you know, one that has more spirit-led worship. Um, I mean, three songs isn't enough. I need about seven, 17, uh, somewhere in that range. And, you know, someone who preaches verse by verse, you know, someone who stands on the truth of Scripture alone, without mixing in all of this, you know, real life examples and psychology and history and like, uh, what do you call it, logic. Like that is getting in the way, okay? This place is too enjoyable and relatable and understandable to be deep. I mean, if I don't get yelled at and walk away feeling like crap, I'm not even sure I went to church. I'll be real with you guys.
That's almost verbatim, something I've been told before. Just FYI. <laughs> but here's the reality. If you're not growing, it may not be due to something you don't know, but something you won't do. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 7. He says, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Which begs the question, what actions? Like, what does a good person look like in the mind of Jesus? What good fruit does he think that we ought to be producing as his followers in our lives? The Apostle Paul summarizes it this way in one of his letters to the church, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, what he is getting at is a, a true Christian becomes more humble, selfless, and merciful as they grow in relationship to Jesus. Being a Christian ought to mean that you are more and more defined by these traits, these fruits of the Spirit, year after year. But in order for these good traits to multiply and grow in your life, any attitude or action that hinders them has to continually be cut away. And that's the part we want to downplay. Jesus said it this way, John chapter 15 Verse one, he says, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit and prunes the branches that do, so they'll produce even more. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. The fruit of the spirit in your life is proof that you are my true disciples. It brings great glory to my father and you will be filled with joy. This is my commandment my non-negotiable, love each other in the same way I've loved you. Now, when we read this, it, it sounds like really, really positive. But here's the reality. I just want to be clear with you. Pruning is painful. Pruning is painful. Sit with this metaphor for a minute. Imagine that a way of thinking or doing has so grafted itself onto your being that the only way to be free from it is to slice into you, to cut it out, and kill it. That's, that's abrasive. That's what Jesus is advocating. And it's painful because it can feel like you're dying. And the reason it feels like you're dying is because part of you actually is. Jesus likened it to, to crucifixion. That's how brutally invasive he saw this sort of self-inflicted soul surgery that it feels like a crucifixion. Jesus says this in Luke chapter nine, verse 23. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. These words are enormously heavy, and they ought to feel that way. 
And in case this has never occurred to you before, I want to just give you a straightforward, like sort of practical translation of what Jesus is really trying to say with this metaphor. He's saying the, the cross isn't just something Jesus did for us, it's also something we do with him. Like Jesus didn't just die so that we don't have to, he died to teach us how to. A commitment to live for Christ is a decision to die to self daily. That is the path to spiritual growth. Which means if you never crucify anything about yourself, you will never grow. You'll be loved. You may be forgiven. You may get to sneak into heaven, but you won't grow. You won't actually look like what a follower of Christ was intended to be. And how do we do this? Like, again, Jesus makes it really clear in the same sentence. He says that in order to actually allow yourself to be pruned, to actually crucify the parts of yourself that need to go, you're going to have to give up your own way. And the reason he used those words is because this is actually what he meant. He means, he means this quite literally. It looks like, you know, wanting to lash out at someone and put them in their place, but instead choosing to respond by calmly listening to them and communicating with kindness. It's wanting to force someone to do what you want them to do right now, but instead choosing to give them the freedom to find their way with Christ at their pace. It's wanting to numb your anxiety or insecurity by shopping or you know 17 glasses of wine but instead choosing to actually be vulnerable with someone else who will come alongside you, support you, and point you to Christ. It's wanting to exit any situation that feels a little bit uncomfortable the second it feels uncomfortable, but instead choosing to lean on God to keep your commitments and see things through. And maybe you're realizing, as I just give a couple examples of which I could give millions, pruning isn't pleasant, and it's not pleasant because selfish desires don't die quietly. And this is why I would rather prune you than allow you to prune me. I think most Christians aren't opposed to crucifixion. They're just more interested in crucifying others than themselves. We would love to nail somebody else to the cross because we know what their issues are and what they need to give up to Christ. And we would love to talk and post about that. What are my issues? Oh, we don't need to talk about that. I'm forgiven. Yeah, and according to a billboard, there's another word that somebody would use to describe you. <laughs> Notice that, that Jesus tells his followers to take up their own cross. In other words, it's not forced upon them by other people. And that's actually what, what makes taking up your cross so powerful. It's your decision. It's you electively deciding to do it to yourself. It's willingly laying down your own wants for the sake of something higher. Because here's the reality. Maybe nobody's told you this before. You could do whatever you want to. 
You really can. You are free to do whatever you want. I tell my kids this, and it, always, it shocks them every time. Like, do I have to do this? I'm like, no, you can do whatever you want to. Well, I can't kill someone. I'm like, yeah, you can. I mean, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. But you can do whatever you want to. And then what you also must do is deal with the consequences of the choices of your freedom. You can do whatever you want to. And in fact, like the New Testament authors don't deny this, but they, they, they warn us about it as well. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Again, the Apostle Paul says this. You've been called to live in freedom. In other words, you can do whatever you want. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. In other words, and you've heard this before, right? This is a biblical concept. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think there, a little bit there's a, a sort of a cultural um, or values-based breakdown here. Like modern Westerners, we tend to think of freedom as freedom from, okay? Which is the ability to do whatever you want to do. But the Bible's ancient Eastern writers, they talk more about freedom for, which is the ability to choose not to do everything you could do for the sake of something bigger than you. And this is what they held up as really the, the most godly thing you could do is to say no to yourself for the sake of someone else. This is the choice to willingly submit yourself to the relational constraints of love. This is the way of Jesus. The relational constraints of love mean that although you could do and can do whatever you want to do, like doing everything you want to do has a way of isolating you from the relationships that you most desperately desire. I can, in my marriage, do whatever I want to do. And some of those things come with the consequence of receiving divorce papers. <laughs> it ends the relationship. Some things that I could do aren't worth doing because of what they cost relationally. You can do whatever you want to do. And some of those things will cost you the respect of your children. They'll cost you like your job. They'll cost you time in prison. Everything comes at a price. And here's my question for you. What is it that you won't do to show God's love to someone around you? Like are there things in your life that are off limits to Jesus? You're just like, I mean, Jesus, you can, you can just say whatever you want. I'm here to follow you in most areas. Like, are there things that you are just not willing to crucify? Even if Jesus lovingly confronted you about that thing specifically. I read a lot of history, and there's this um, story that I read recently of the Knights Templar. And um, the legend has it that uh, these sort of self-declared um, Jesus warriors that they were baptized before they went into battle. But as they were dunked under the water, they held their hand up, holding their sword above the waters of baptism. As if to say, Jesus, you can have all of me, except this. 
God, renew all of me. Save all of me. God, I submit everything to you. Accept my thirst for violence. Accept my need to always be right. Accept my search for my own glory and justification. These things, God, I'm, I'm afraid I can't give you access to, but definitely save the rest of me for sure. And the reason I bring this up is, isn't this all of us? Isn't this what we all do? Like, I feel like we're all, we're like, oh, I want to be baptized and cleansed and rescued. I want to follow Jesus. But I feel like all of us, as we're being dunked down, we're like holding something up. And I wonder, like, what is the thing that you were holding and let hover just above the waters of baptism in your own life? In other words, like, to be real straightforward, what might you need to let go of to look more like Jesus? Maybe it's what you do with your money. Maybe it's a, a, pol a particular political stance. Maybe it's the demands you place on other people. Maybe it's your fear of trust. Maybe it's the negative coping mechanisms that you inherited from somebody else. Maybe it's the false confidence that you project. Maybe it's the thing that you secretly do just to sort of survive the day. And maybe you're not aware of how that attitude or action is actually affecting other people. Maybe like the people in Jesus' day, like you can't see how unloving it's made you. You're, you're not aware of the hypocrite it's turned you into and that outsiders look at this issue in your life as proof that Christianity does not work. And Jesus is trying to describe uh, what it is to be a Christian and sort of in, in summation, like how people would be able to identify Christians. He says this in John chapter 13, verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In other words, if, if people look at your life and there's not all that much love-oriented action in service of others who are not like you, you've got a lot more to crucify in you. Because the truth is, no matter how much you want to avoid it or deny it, you can't love your neighbor fully without saying no to yourself occasionally. And in fact, it's so occasional that Jesus says, it's daily, daily. You see, Christianity is not an evacuation plan to heaven. It's a transformation plan for earth. It's one built on a strategy to help people become loving human beings who build loving societies and follow the loving example of Jesus. And here's the question I have for you. Is that obvious to anyone observing your life? If someone was asked to describe what a Christian looks like by looking at you, what would they say? Would they be able to stumble anywhere close to this definition forged in the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament authors? Or would they come up with a bunch of words, some of which you're not even sure should be said in church? Some of which are horribly negative. Some of which if you're willing to be honest, are not things you want to be or be around. 
this right here, this is what we're here to do. And the question is, is this what you're doing? Because if this is not what you have made your life about, you may get to go to heaven, you may be saved, but you are not allowing Jesus to sanctify you. You are not following Christ. I think maybe it's not that Christianity doesn't work. Maybe it's that you are unwilling to let it do its work on you. Maybe you are unwilling to embrace the pain of pruning. Maybe there are things that you just said, I, this, I'm not willing to crucify this. And Jesus is inviting you, not just to be accepted and forgiven by him, but to actually follow his way, the way of the cross that doesn't seek to crucify other people, but that willingly looks in the mirror at themselves and willingly crucifies any part of themselves that doesn't look like him. This is what I wanna invite you into because the more of us who take this seriously, the more likely it is that Christianity becomes the vision Jesus originally had for it. Would you bow your heads across this room? I just wanna pray this into your life today. God, I just, today I pray for every person who has had a horrible experience with Christians who have proven with their lives to become more arrogant, vengeful, violent and hateful due to their association with Christianity. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the fact that that is not the movement that you are leading. Those are not the traits that you are growing inside of us. And God, I pray that there would be a submission to your spirit, a willingness to invite into our lives the painful pruning process of cutting away from us the stuff that does not look like you, that does not submit to you. And God, that we would put ourselves on a path to follow you completely, that there would be nothing that we hold above the waters of baptism, but that we would give you an all access pass to every attitude, every mindset, every opinion, every action, every behavior in our lives, that everything is up for grabs if you're the one doing the grabbing. And God, I pray that you would do your work on us so that we can do the work that we are meant to do here on earth on your behalf. God, may our individual choices to submit to you in very painful and personal ways begin to shift the public perception of who you are and what your movement is about. May others' experiences with us change their expectations of you. And may it shift their receptiveness to you in their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona, 
or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.